0: In this episode of Balancing the Christian Life, we talk to podcaster Hal Hammonds about the importance of perspective. Welcome to Balancing the Christian Life. I'm Dr. Kenny Embry. We'll talk about how to be better Christians and people in the digital age. Let's go. There's an old story about five blind men and how they were trying to conceptualize an elephant. One felt along the side of the elephant and said it reminded him of a wall. It's tall and powerful. Another had put his hand around the leg of the elephant and said, it's not like a wall, but a a pillar. You could barely reach your hands around it. The third was around the trunk and said, it's not like a pillar or a wall, but like a snake. A fourth near the tail said, it wasn't like a snake because it had too much hair. The fifth was around the ear and said, it was definitely tall, but very thin and absolutely nothing like a snake at all. None of these guys were wrong. They just all had different perspectives on what the elephant was. It's one thing to talk about animals, but Christianity is another one of those things where perspective makes a lot of difference. This week, I'm talking to evangelist and podcaster Hal Hammonds, who hosts the Citizen Heaven podcast. Hal's a good show where he talks a lot about the practical side of perspective. He argues we are living in a world overrun by sin and our citizenship should be in heaven. Hal has a thoughtful perspective himself. He's an optimist and does a pretty nice job of putting politics in its place. Hal has written several books, including Remember Me With Favor and Construction and Progress. I'll list those in the show notes. He has also been a longtime evangelist, both in Texas and Florida. But I start our conversation with a question I've been thinking a lot about lately. How you doing, Hal?
1: I'm doing great, Kenny. Thanks for having me.
0: What's the one thing you do as a Christian that makes your Christian walk better?
1: Narrowing it down to one thing is tricky, but... Lately, I've been thinking a lot about patience. Mm -hmm. I think that I have gotten a lot more patient with myself, especially with my brethren, and certainly with God. Mm -hmm. Things don't work out on my timetable. Patience doesn't come in pill form. Patience (laughs) is worked for. Patience is earned. When I ask brethren to achieve something, Uh they don't always respond in the way that I would prefer that they do, or at least they don't seem to. But at some point in the last probably five years, I started asking myself, do you believe that your brethren are trying to do the right thing? Yes. Do you believe that they read the same Bible and they believe the same Bible that you do? Yes. I I wish they read a little bit more sometimes, but yes, (laughs) I believe they're reading it. Do you trust that the Holy Spirit is working the same plan in them that he is working in you? I say, yes, I, I believe that. Well, then don't worry about it because they probably don't see the results in me. Yeah. If I don't see my work is having an immediate and demonstrable impact on other people in the first place, maybe I'm thinking too much of myself right. that the things that I'm trying to work in them are so needful in the first place. And in the second place, who's to say that it isn't working? It is a process. It's a slow process sometimes, sometimes agonizingly slow, but I see it yeah. being slow in me. So why shouldn't I accept being slow in them?
0: Really, what you're saying there is that your secret to Christianity is perspective. Is that a fair way of thinking about that?
1: It is. I want to do God's job. Yeah. And I'm not qualified for God's job. (laughs) I don't know how I got the nerve to apply for that job in the first place. I'll let God do his thing and I'll let my brethren do their thing. I sleep so much better. I'm not suggesting that there's magical, wonderful things going on out there that I just don't see. I don't know. Right. But I've come to realize I don't have to know. Trust God to
0: do his thing. There are times when that just becomes really frustrating, Hal. Oh, yeah. How do you deal with the frustration? Being married helps. <laughs> that is so true.
1: Uh, having a wife that, that sees what you go through and sees what you see, and usually more of it than you see. Yeah. Somebody to, to bounce things off of, somebody to keep you level. I, I can moderate her. She can moderate me. There is a certain... Punching bag mentality, probably that preachers mm-hmm. who care about what they do, and really Christians who care about what they do. You, you feel like you need to hit something, and I'm not suggesting that you hit your wife. That's a mistake. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> right, but right, right, right. When when you have this this ability to to confront somebody and have these imaginary arguments with people and, and say the things that you would like to say, but you know you shouldn't say, and just kind of get it out of your system, and and have somebody there just kind of nod her head and say, "You're right. You're right." You know. I think that, too.
0: Well, I don't know about you. I'm not always wild about somebody who criticizes me and says, Kenny, you just need to uh, you need to cool it on that. You need to ratchet it down a couple of notches. And my first reaction is, says who <laughs> um, are you going to be telling me what to do? Right. By the way, that's an idiot in me talking. Yeah. How do you deal with the idiot in you? How unless you don't have an idiot.
1: That's the story of my marriage, essentially yeah my wife thought it was her job to keep me leveled, keep me grounded. that involves yeah. a certain amount of criticism and she's quite tactful about it. she's not rude or whatever, not typically that wasn't good enough for the first ten years or so. Mm-hmm. I preferred to be told that I was a genius <laughs> and that all my ideas were great. yeah well, all my ideas weren't great, especially the first ten years and having somebody yeah. to criticize you like that in a, in a kind and loving way from a position where their general motivation, their general attitude is unimpeachable. Yeah, The average person out there in might actually be out to get me. He's probably not, but he might be out to get me. My wife is not out to get me. Right. She's on my side. And eventually I come around to that. So this criticism must be in my best interest. No, I'm very much like you. I don't like being criticized. I don't know many people who do. Y- you come to a point where you realize being wrong is not that big a deal. As right. long as you realize that you're wrong and you learn from the lesson, we're going to be wrong a lot. Yeah. And usually it's not a tragic kind of thing. Occasionally it is, but usually it is simply a learning experience. And at the end of it, if we learn the lesson, we're stronger for it.
0: You're talking about the death of ego right, right there, Hal, and and the idea that that you need to get out of your own way. God does a pretty good job of of saying, you know, you're not that important and maybe you ought to start checking your ego out the door every once in a while. It's still a hard lesson to learn.
1: It is a very hard lesson to learn. Being a Christian is in large measure about acknowledging your shortcomings, your inadequacies, how poorly you measure up to a standard. right? And trusting that somebody's going to love you anyway. I'm always astonished that people like tiger woods or whatever have coaches yeah who's gonna tell tiger woods how to play golf and that's because he wants to get better yeah this is why concert pianists play scales in their hotel rooms before they go on stage they're trying to get better yeah they're always trying to get better i need to be getting better
0: too it sounds like your promise for christianity is feel worse about yourself find out all your deficiencies find out why you aren't that important come on in uh (laughs)
1: When you live under grace and you start understanding what grace is, that becomes a, a really exciting and interesting concept. Right. If if you believe in salvation by works, then this is extraordinarily frustrating and depressing. And eventually you'll quit if you're insightful at all, because you realize you're never going to measure up. Right. When you Properly appreciate grace. You can balance in your mind the importance of striving toward perfection, and you can appreciate your own inherent inadequacies, and you can trust in God to fill in the gaps there. You can freely strive for greatness, and it's a very exciting thing. Learning becomes an adventure. Correction becomes a positive experience. Right When John the Baptist goes out to the wilderness and, and people come in droves to listen to him, Tell them that they are not good enough. And that's what the gospel message is. Repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is ready to deliver his promises to you, and you are not ready for it. Yeah. You are not good enough for this. Yeah, You need to change. People ate that up. Not everybody, obviously. Right. But the people who were fit for the kingdom did. And I like to think that that's where I am, where I'm trying to be, where I'm encouraging other people to be.
0: The name of your podcast is The Citizen of Heaven. Most of this goes to perspective. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven?
1: When I think of being a citizen of heaven, I think ultimately of three things. I think of, first of all, taking direction from my one true king. Yeah, I take my direction from Jesus. Daniel's a great example of this. Plenty of others, of course, people who say no matter where I am, no matter where I'm doing, I am God's child. I'm going to act like God's child. I am uh-huh. the future inheritor of a of a tremendous blessing, a tremendous grace that God has prepared for me after this life is over. That's where my head is, that's where my heart is. Uh, secondly and necessarily following on to that, feeling out of place in Satan's world. Yeah. We need to come to grips with that. Yeah. Three times in the book of John, Jesus calls the devil the prince of this world or the ruler of this world. And, and if you're in question about who's running things, then maybe you need to be paying closer attention because it's pretty yeah. obvious who's in charge out there. Things on Earth are being run by the wrong side, and that's why things are so yeah. messed up. We insist on thinking that is an aberration, that that is a, a problem mm-hmm. that with the right program or the right speech or whatever is going to be fixed. It's not going to be fixed. Huh. It's never going to be fixed. We complain about how life is so hard or life is so unfair or life is so strange or whatever. You are the ultimate fish out of water as a Christian. You are not from this world. Right. Getting away from the idea of finding our way in this world and getting back to the idea of being uncomfortable and okay with feeling uncomfortable. And thirdly, which naturally follows on to that, looking for something else, this eager anticipation. I hope it's not a cliche. I hope I'm sincere about this. But when people will ask me, what do you think about the presidential race? Or what do you think about the riots? Or what do you think about this, some other kind of disaster that clearly I have no control over? And occasionally right. even lands at my doorstep and, and forces me to deal with it. Usually not. Lots of times, it's just a present and tangible drain on my resources, on my psyche. And I just say, I just think about heaven. What else are you going to do? Well, that doesn't help things. It's not supposed to help things. It's supposed to give me perspective. It's supposed to help me get my bearings straight, find my true north. The, The gospel is my compass to find my way home. I usually compare it to a prison cell. We as Christians are imprisoned on planet Earth. We are trapped here. And so often we feel like our job is to find a way to make our pillow fluffier and our bed softer and our floor cleaner and our warden nicer and our neighbors quieter and our view better. That's what we're obsessing over. When in reality, what we ought to be obsessing over is the day that we get to go home. We get to leave this place. We're not supposed to be comfortable here. We don't belong here. God did not make us to occupy earth. God made us to occupy heaven. That's what we're built for. And those who have faith, those who believe in this creator, those who believe in heaven are going to be uncomfortable on earth. So being a citizen of heaven is about acknowledging these things, seeing our true home, seeing our level of discomfort and becoming comfortable with that and acknowledging Jesus as Lord and savior through all of this, never losing sight of what we're really all about, who we really are at our core.
0: What you're talking about there is what some people would say is basically writing out the clock. Yeah. Here we are on earth. And boy, we just got to white knuckle it through this life so that we can eventually get to the next life. Let's get in our little compounds. Let's make sure that, that nothing uh, outside there uh, affects us. And we are not going to be uh, any kind of influence to those around us. We're just going to make sure that the pure stay pure. Right. And and, and so that we can get on our, our spaceship and go go to heaven. What do you say to people who who think like that?
1: Well, in the first place, how much do you love your neighbor as yourself? Right. How how comfortable are you with the idea of us versus them? One of the books that I featured uh, recently on the podcast is The uh, the Coddling of the American Mind. Yeah. And one of the, the great untruths that they focus on that I think was really important, this idea of this world is all about. The good guys versus the bad guys. Us versus them. All the people on our side of the line are wonderful, and all the people on their side of the line are terrible. And the bigger a gap we can make between these two, the better. And that is not the attitude that God asks us to take in Satan's world. It may seem a little incongruous, like you're saying. There is a natural inclination toward monasticism for, for Christians. The devil is going to drag me down. Surely I want to get as far away from the devil and the devil's people as I can. Right. And to a certain degree, that's true. But to a certain degree, that's impossible even if you wanted to do it. Right. And Paul says that's part of the plan. He hasn't called us out of the world. He's called us to be lights in the world. And so stay pure, certainly stay distant and be seen as being distant. Let people know you don't have to be rude about it necessarily. Right. Don't err on the side of camouflage. Allow yourself to be seen as different. Encourage people to see the value in a different value system. Something that is giving me peace and hope and tranquility and joy. People out there in the world seem to be sorely lacking right now. Well, if I can be different from everybody else, and maybe different isn't such a bad thing, Well, then that opens doors to bring people over onto our side of the line. And not because we were such tremendous influences necessarily, but because God is making a difference in our lives. And he might make a difference in their lives, too, if they give him half a chance.
0: Yeah. The people that Jesus criticized the most, in my opinion, were the ones who were the closest to understanding the truth. I think the Pharisees had a lot right. It was their attitude that was just so lousy. As opposed to the ones that he often gives compliments to are people like the Roman centurions, people who had absolutely no background in Judaism. They were the ones that, quite frankly, the Pharisees would have discounted immediately. I think there's a lot of what you're talking about there is being in the world, but not of the world and allowing Christian virtues Love, justice, grace, mercy, letting those virtues seep into your relationship with everybody versus the values of this world. Uh, Greed, uh, backbiting, impatience. Those are all things that we would recognize that this world values. That we love winners and losers and we love to taunt it over the losers. Well, that's
1: because... Those are tactics that are used and used effectively to accomplish carnal goals, which is not necessarily a bad thing, depending on the context. Uh, There are sinful approaches that people will take to to win a football game or win an election or or win a girl or a boy or whatever. We, We understand that that you can go too far, but it's not always that way. Carnal goals are not achieved in spiritual ways. And and this is why the Sermon on the Mount is such a head-scratcher. When the average person out there in the world hears about turning the other cheek and loving their enemies and and going the extra mile, how in the world can I get what I want out of life by doing those things? And Jesus says, you probably (laughs) won't. This is not a recipe for success in life. This is not a recipe for making a million dollars. This is a recipe for going to heaven. And if that's not your objective, then these approaches are probably going to sound like the dumbest thing you've ever heard. Jesus calls us towards spiritual goals, and it's going to take a spiritual person to value those things and to pursue those things. You were mentioning before about, about how he is hard on the accomplished ones, the almost there ones, and not necessarily so much on the ones that are on the periphery of faith. That's the way discipline yeah. works in general. A parent doesn't treat a two-year-old the same as a 12-year-old. Right. A, a karate master does not treat a white belt like he, teaches, like he treats a black belts, nor is he expected to. There, you can quit at any time. If karate is not right. for you or whatever, then that'll come out at some point. But it's not yeah, the master's job to make you quit it's the master's job to find out what's inside of you. And usually that means gentle coercion. That means positive reinforcement at these early stages to help the person realize the joy and the satisfaction that's involved in this process. And then later on, when they think they know what they're doing, maybe they need to be taken down a notch. Maybe they need to be corrected and say, Hey, you know what? Let's go back to the beginning because I think you missed a step somewhere. The Nicodemus conversation a great example of this. You think that you've arrived, and in fact, you really don't know what you're doing at all. We need to to reset, go back to being born again, and, and start this process all over again.
0: Which one did Jesus love, the Romans or the Pharisees? Well, he loved them all. That's right. And love looks a lot different for those two groups, doesn't it?
1: It absolutely does.
0: Our biggest fights are often with the people that we love the most. Quite frankly, they're also the ones that are probably the closest to being what they should be. It's because they probably know what they should be doing, and they're just not doing it. Right. And those kind of conflicts are, are really important to have and, and important to expose. Yeah, there's a lot of work that's going to have to go and be redone. But you built on something that was not very strong.
1: I say all the time, there's like seven, eight billion people in this world. There are only three people in the world that can really make me lose my cool. Only three in the entire world. They all live in my house. What are the odds <laughs> on that? I mean, that's just astronomical. That's totally off the charts. How could that be? Well, it's yeah. it's because they live in my house. It's because there is love there. It's because there is a real connection. Because you're vulnerable to being hurt, yeah. you're more likely to be hurt
0: on your show, you, you often talk about people who, quite frankly, have a really strong work ethic. And that, that's one thing that I really appreciate about what you're doing. I, I think there are a lot of good thinkers, great thinkers that, that love throwing out great ideas. But when you look at their track record on what they've actually accomplished, it doesn't look like much. But they sure do know the right <laughs> words to say. Uh, you, you talk about Chip Gaines, who I have a, a, a lot of admiration for. You talk about Mike Rowe. You talk about a lot of these people who... Have just as much elbow grease in the game as as they have a mind right. share in the game. Why are these the guys that you appreciate and and is there anybody else that you just really admire
1: i I think I am drawn to one talent people who act like two talent people i I'm really inspired by people like the the poor widow in luke chapter twenty one who has virtually nothing to give and gives everything that that she has. I've known any number of physically infirm people, older people, people who by any reasonable measure had very little to give to society Mm -hmm. in general and, and to the work of Jesus in particular, but who gave everything that they had and inspired everybody who was around them. And Maybe made more of an impact than I made with you know, two sermons and two classes a week. Who's to say about yeah. these things when you have some ordinary housewife who has the opportunity to welcome the uh, the captain of the enemy into her house and she takes a tent peg and nails his head to the floor? You know that's huh. that's some initiative. That is seizing the moment. And so many of the people in the Bible, many of whom have books named after them are really all about being ordinary people living their lives, doing the best they can in the moment, being part of a bigger picture that they probably didn't even understand themselves, but simply showed Mm -hmm. up every day and worked. They showed up and did what was expected of them, not necessarily in a spectacular way, but when those people are not there, it makes a difference. When the guy who's supposed to pick up your trash doesn't show up for three or four weeks, that makes a difference in your life. <laughs> you may not think about it a whole yes. lot, but when he's not there, it's obvious. And the same thing goes for the person who who vacuums the church building, the person who prepares communion, the people who do the work behind the scenes and not only don't get credit, don't especially want to get credit. My wife is absolutely yeah. paranoid about getting credit about things. Uh, that's that's her personality. And not everybody's like that. And I understand that. And there's a certain degree right. to which we should right. applaud ordinary activity and ordinary people. But the good ones don't do it for the applause. We strive together and we value the little things, the medium things, the big things. No matter where they're coming from, no matter who they're coming from, they're all important. I'm well known in the foyer for being the positive guy. You know, somebody asked me how I'm doing great. And, and I have been criticized for being shallow or, or insincere or whatever. I, I don't think of it that way. I think of it when I do think about it. Sometimes it is kind of an instinctive thing. But usually when I do think about it, I think, well, I'm a child of God. I'm heading to heaven. I'm surrounded by people that I love. Why wouldn't I be great? And if somebody asks me, I- I'm great, how are you? I'm good. Oh, okay. Well, then I win because I'm great. <laughs> I-, I say that to people in the grocery store sometimes. The cashiers say, I- I'm good. Yeah. Oh, well, I win because I'm great. But it's, <laughs> why not be great? Why not be positive? Why not be excited about your life? And I realize that different personalities are different ways. I'm not asking everybody to be an extrovert. I'm not especially extroverted. I'm not asking everybody to be bubbly and and effervescent and such. <laughs> Frankly, if I were surrounded by a hundred effervescent Christians, I'd probably shoot myself. Having that right. that sense, that that calming attitude of joy, not about being thrilled about your circumstances, but every day realizing how wonderful it is to live under God's Son, that should be a a powerful cohesion that brings the people of God together.
0: Yeah. You're talking a lot about perspective. You're talking a lot about attitude. Carol Dweck would call this mindset. It's how you see things that often change how you respond to things. Mm-hmm. The Bible is filled with a lot of very good spiritual stories, but it strikes me that you're probably seeing a lot of spirituality in the mundane. You talk about the housewife who's who's doing her chores or people who are doing the stuff that they have to do, that that power of responsibility. What inspires you in your daily life to see the spiritual in the mundane?
1: Maybe it started simply by looking for material to preach about. I have a journalism degree that made me think that I was something of a writer. And so when I started preaching, I did a lot of writing. And if you're going to publish a bulletin every week, then you need to have something to write about for about 20 years now. I have written pretty consistently a column that I call the final word. And basically, I just take one word out of the lexicon and use that to write 300, 350 words uh, about something that's going on in my life, something I saw at the store, something I saw on television, on YouTube, and turning that toward a spiritual point. One of my mentors uh, used to say I was the only guy that he knew that could drive to the grocery store, and come back with seven bulletin article ideas. And and that's <laughs> that's the way my mind thinks. I just naturally find something in the world that fascinates me, that grabs my attention, and I find a way to apply that to spiritual things. And sometimes it's 300 words, sometimes it's 30 minutes, whatever. Finding a way to connect everyday life to our walk with Christ. I think that's what Deuteronomy 6 it's all about six through nine, where he's saying that you need to talk about your relationship with God when you're walking by the way, when you're sitting down at the dinner table, when you rise up, when you sit down every facet of your life, especially in your dealings with children, but, but not just that every facet of your life is an opportunity to draw closer to God, to emphasize spiritual things, to see the sublime in the mundane. I'm not especially insightful. I'm not especially clever, but I pay attention. If we just think yeah. that this this world is all about teaching us about the world, we miss the point. All yeah. of these things are yeah. an excuse, an opportunity, an open door to bring us to faith, to bring us to God. And the more we can embrace that, the deeper our faith will grow. And the more we'll realize that everything we do in this life is about heaven. Everything that we do in this life it's about faith. Every step we take, including the bad ones. This is about finding our way home.
0: You mentioned the sublime, and, and it reminds me of, of something that C.S. Lewis wrote in The Abolition of Man, where, where, where he talks about, we love thinking that the sublime makes us feel great. What that feeling does is it makes you recognize how small you are and why God is so great. There is so much that we can't do that God has done that makes us appreciate who God is and what he has done for us. Again, what you're talking about there is that perspective. You can take almost any episode in your life. Once it's happened, now you have the job of interpreting it. Right. And your interpretation is now going to frame the way you see it from now on. And you have a lot of options in interpreting things that happen to you and happen around you. I think it takes a lot of maturity to start interpreting things from a godly perspective.
1: There's there's a, a weird balance between great things and little things.
0: Yeah.
1: How the, the big things are best seen in little things. The little things give insight into the big things. You know, the book of Ruth, I, I just read through the book of Ruth uh, a few weeks ago and it's this little story about this little person a couple of little people ordinary people just doing their their thing we see in ruth we see in naomi depression and hopelessness and you flip that around and you find purpose and you find service and and we see that this is an insight into our character that little people teach little lessons that become big lessons that become life lessons. And then at the end yeah. of it, oh, and good news, Ruth had a, baby, had a baby. And that baby had a baby. And that baby had a baby. And that baby turned out to be King David. And all of a sudden you realize, right. this is a huge story. This is how God yeah. brought the king to his people through this little person, this ordinary person. Yeah. doing ordin- It didn't look like it had anything to do with anything. Ruth seems like the most innocuous story in the Bible, and maybe it is, but even these little things are put in place by God to accomplish great purposes, and it's impossible for us to know that in the moment. Ruth didn't understand, almost certainly never understood what was going on in her life, but God did. So it's not important so much for us to know our specific place in God's big picture. It's more important for us yeah. to just do what he's asked us to do in the moment and find purpose in that, find joy in that, find hope in that, yeah, and, and trust that God's going to work all these things out.
0: We keep on wanting these big political movements right. to move the needle in a significant <laughs> way. What God keeps on doing is he keeps on saying, no. I need you to move the needle in your life. And quite frankly, these are going to be fairly small things to you, but they're going to have big ramifications for everyone around you. The story of Jesus is the story of an innocent man that was unjustly accused and killed. And how many times has that story played out? That story plays out over and over and over again. What makes it important is he was also the son of God. And the reason that this innocent man was killed was to stand in for us, for all the things that we do that we should not have done, that he's willing to take on the sins of us. Quite frankly, the story of Jesus is a small story with big implications. And I understand it it, it might sound weird to say that, but it's not an unusual story. Because it happens every year that we, we find out somebody who was killed should not have been killed, should have been exonerated. Israel was never an important nation. It was only because God made it an important nation. There's not anything political that, that Israel did that was very important to the nations around it. The only thing that made Israel important was because that was God's nation. The only thing that makes us important is we are God's people. We aren't going to change the politics around us. And I don't think that's what God's asking us to do. God keeps on asking us, okay, t- treat people decently, be good, and do good to other people around you.
1: Absolutely. And, and I remember thinking growing up, reading stories about David and his conquests and, and the, the battles that they fought against one tribe or another and expanding the borders of the kingdom of Israel thinking that that's what it was all about, thinking that the bigger the nation got, the better, and, and the more glory to God and, and that sort of thing, and not realizing that during all of this time, there were not only internal struggles in David's own life, but also even tribes right down the road that they should have destroyed you know, a couple of generations ago and still hadn't destroyed, right. that the, the actual work given to them Had not been accomplished. And and you see that the borders move back and forth. And exactly like you said. Even at its greatest. Even under Solomon. The kingdom of Israel was not necessarily anything to to brag about. In in terms of territory. In terms of of political power. But this was not the world empire that failed. That's not what God had ever had in mind for his people. God wanted his people to take the land of Canaan and establish themselves and be alive in the sinful world and do their thing right there. That's what we're doing. We yeah. talk about saving the world sometimes. And I understand what we mean by that. We're talking about saving individuals in the world, right. but we're not going to fundamentally change anything. I mean, who do we think we are? We're outnumbered. Right. You know, Seven billion to one uh, at this point, practically <laughs> the, the idea that, that we could, fundamentally change the face of planet earth is just insane. We're, we're yeah. going to lose this battle and we need to come to grips with this. The battle for planet earth has already been lost. It's just not going to happen. Again, going back to the citizen of heaven business, the thoughts of man were on evil continually Yeah, and Noah found grace. That's what we're doing here. We're not trying to make the world a less sinful place. Yeah. We're trying to be righteous people in a sinful world, yeah. And every day, waking up and going out, and trying to find that grace, trying to find the blessing that God has for us in any given moment, trying to keep the sin on the outside and the hope on the inside. Yeah, it's it's not always easy, but God will empower us to do this. And, and maybe the worst thing that we can do is convince ourselves that the battle is political that the battle is social, that the battle is measured in terms of balance and, and things of that nature. We have bought into this idea over the last 400 years to one degree or another that rampant Americanism is, if not the same, at least inextricably entwined
0: yeah.
1: with Christianity. And yeah, we've, uh, Along with that philosophy, we have bought into this idea that we're going to fix things. This is what the word social gospel, the term social gospel has been kind of blown out of proportion in in my lifetime. But what it ultimately meant in the beginning when people were talking about this is using the gospel to fix the world. It's just as well it is in God's plan because it doesn't work. It never has worked. We look around us today and we see what 400 years of this project has done. We're worse now yeah. in a lot of ways than uh, than we were when I was born. We've made a lot of progress, done a yeah. lot of good things, but this is not our fight. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You are yeah. not fighting a political fight. Now, if you want to be political people in our political world, that's your business. I'm not opposed to politics. Right. I'm not opposed to activism. No. Yeah. But thinking that you're serving Jesus by going to the ballot box, you are kidding yourself. That's not what this is about. You serve Jesus by living your life. That's our battle. That's yeah. our war.
0: You can't change the world, but you can change somebody's world. We can make a world of difference for one person, but we can't make a difference in the world. Does that make right. sense? Yes. How do we get those around us, see that they need to change their citizenship from Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green Party, whatever, to... I'm not a citizen of this world. I'm a citizen of heaven.
1: The biggest thing we can do is act like this is a change that's worth making. If you can't motivate somebody to get out of the situation they're in, they won't get out. Inertia is a real thing. We have a very strong tendency to move when we have been moving, to stay when we have been staying. And people out there in the world are comfortable where they are. Some of them have have already realized their dissatisfaction. They're looking for something. Some people don't know they're looking. And when they look at Christians and they see cynicism and they see bitterness and they see envy and they see distrust and they see ugliness that we so oftentimes see among the people of God. They say, well, I can be miserable where I am. I don't need Jesus for that. (laughs) I I can just stay where I am and be miserable. When we present a front of hope and joy and peace, and we make sure, important part of this process, we make sure that we give Jesus the glory for this. I am where I am because Jesus has put me here. Everything that you're seeing, everything that you're envying about me, that's Jesus at work in me. I am not this way because my children are not on drugs or because my wife has been faithful to me or because I have money in the bank or because I have a lot of friends or my parents are good or that's not it. Those things in large measure are a result of the choices that I have made in my life. And first among those choices, a choice to serve Jesus Christ, being willing to be a citizen of heaven that comes with this plethora of, of blessings, the idea of submitting to Jesus and giving him everything on the surface is going to be completely ridiculous because these people have been walking in darkness and we're thrusting them into the light. We're taking the people out of the cave. They've been in the cave for three weeks. You know, the the coal miners to get buried under things and we bring them out into the light and they're horrified at the light. The the first thing they do is they shield their eyes. I can't handle Uh this. Yes, you can. And if you stay in it long enough, you appreciate it long enough, you'll realize you're so much better off now than you were before. But the instinct is going to be to reject that. If we can persuade people to stay in the light, what a wonderful life it is, living in the light, then maybe they'll at least give it a chance.
0: I end all my podcasts with be good and do good. What is good?
1: As a recently repatriated Texan, I am tempted to say (laughs) something here about Mexican food or barbecue, but I think the (laughs) preacher in me is going to win out and refer to Micah 6, verse 8, uh, where he has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God? That sounds pretty good to me.
0: Hal, how could somebody get a hold of you? Number one, they can listen to your podcast, The Citizen of Heaven. Uh, They can read any of the books that you've written, and you've written several, and we haven't talked about that. That's all right. But how could they get a hold of you?
1: Uh, They can reach me at halhammons uh, at gmail.com. That's the email address that I most frequently check. Uh, I have a website that I don't update as often as I could, (laughs) halhammons.com. And uh, I'm all over social media. I have a YouTube channel. Yeah. I'll post uh, video versions of the podcast there. I have uh, 20 pages a week. Another sub page on Facebook where we're reading all the way through the Bible. Uh, it's, you're jumping in a little bit late, but that's okay. You can jump in now. We'll give free <laughs> material to those who need to uh, to follow along with that. And reach me at Lakewood Drive Church of Christ in Georgetown, Texas. If you're ever in the Central Texas area, come come and say hi. I'll buy you coffee.
0: Hal, I really appreciated this. We need to talk again. There was too much that we didn't talk about. So I I really appreciate you spending some time with me this morning.
1: Oh, glad to do it. Thanks for inviting me, Kenny.
0: I hope you enjoyed, Hal. I appreciated the perspective on what politics can and can't do in the life of a Christian. I think he's spot on. Thanks, Hal, for what you're doing. Thanks again to those who support the podcast, like George Sanchez, Barbara McElwain, Mark Russell, Craig Embry, and my parents the encouragement is appreciated. If you like what you've heard, again, please share the podcast with your friends. I hope these episodes are helping you live a more balanced life. So until next week, let's be good and do good.